So good afternoon, welcome to ITFA, and welcome to the filmmaker talk with Everardo Gonzalez. My name is Raúl Niño Zambrano, and I'm one of the programmers of the festival. Um, I'm originally from Venezuela, so I have the pleasure to travel to Latin America for my job. And in all of my trips, I always come to different festivals or events, and Everardo is one of the persons I've been coming across quite, quite often. Um, it, it's, it's wonderful to have him here because I have met him as a very critical tutor in some of the rough cut labs, also as a very good listener teacher when he's talking with the students, also as a very good friend with whom I can have a lot of drinks and have lunch and really talk about Latin America. But mostly, of course, we know Everardo because of his films. Uh, we show the world premiere of his beautiful Quates of Australia, Drought, in 2011. And this year we are showing The Devil's Freedom, which for me is really a masterpiece. And I think it's, it's a masterpiece not only for Mexico, but really for Latin America, but also for the world. It means me a lot. So it was quite easy when we were talking about with whom should we make a filmmaker talk this year at ITFA. And I say, of course, we have to invite Everardo because I'm sure he has a lot of things to tell about the film but also about his career and about how, how can you get to this kind of obra until now. So please, I hope you will enjoy the, the talk, which will be moderated by co-founder and co-director from True Falls, David Wilson. And so enjoy the ride with Everardo. Thanks, Cheryl. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Everardo. Um, I want to actually first ask the audience um, hands up if you've seen Devil's Freedom already. Okay, just a few. So we will, we'll try not to spoil too much as we go. Um, and we will kind of, a, a little bit later in the talk, open up and take some questions from you all. Um, but I want to start for you uh, at, at some kind of beginning, at like a filmmaking beginning. Um, I'm really curious about what, what drove you to want to be a filmmaker and what were the first films you saw that made you say, I want, I want to do something like that. Well, I was um, really uh, studying for becoming a journalist, photographer, street photographer. But then I realized that it was pretty hard to be uh, to make a career in, uh, in photography and journalism because you had to deal with, uh, you know, with all the stuff from the from the journals or from the newspapers. And then after freelance, it was pretty hard. So I had a very close friend who once told me you should go to film school. And I was not really in the mood of that. I was not even, uh, it was never in my thoughts. But then I applied just because I thought, well, it's not easy to be. It's, uh, and Mexico is very, very uh, complicated issue now to be a journalist. Those were the days where the ZLN declared war to the, to the government. So it was a very politicized. Uh, ambience. So but then I say, okay, I will try. But those were, that was before uh, digital cinema. So mostly we were shooting maybe seven films a year in the country. And uh, they were stories that were really far from what I thought uh, art should be. And that was the power to quit 
film school. I was preparing as a cinematographer there, but then the only ways to make a living was advertising, video clips, and all those things. And uh, I came from a very communist school at the university who always told me that advertisement was the devil. <laughs> so it was like a bit shocking to be there. It was a small school, only 13 students a year, and I came from the public university. So it was kind of a, sh a short circuit for me. Then I made a first exercise, a seven-minute film. It was delegated by a great teacher that I have called Ademir Kenovic, who won a, a Palme d'Or in Cannes with a perfect circle, Bosnian filmmaker, and he pushed me a lot. Uh, he told me, you have talent. He told me that, and uh, he gave me, in a way, confidence in order to try. So I made the first uh, film after watching a beautiful uh, film called The State of Dogs, a film shot in Mongolia. That's when I first saw that a documentary could be a narrative as well and that it was a part of cinematography, not only part of a sociology or anthrop visual anthropology or a history with a capital H. Uh, so then I say, I want, I want to try. And then I find, found out in that small exercise that I could do the things that I was looking for, who was a combination with, with arts and uh, social sciences or social research. And then that happened. I had the first feature called Pulkesong, in a moment, very special moment, because it was kind of an experiment for the, old, the first uh, processes of data to cinema. So it was not quite excellent the quality, but then it gave me a 35 print, 35 millimeter print of the film, and then that one pushed the other one, and that was the story. It was never in my plans. <laughs> so, I mean, because that was a moment, like you said, seven films a year, and. At that time, I think Mexico was really known internationally for making like really high quality short fiction films that played like on the international festival circuit and whatever. So was there any, besides the professor, was there any community for you that sort of helped no, push no. you to documentary? No, it was, a, it was kind of a desert over there. Actually, it was like uh, not very well seen. It was, you were like a second division guy always. No? So, but that was something that I enjoyed as well. So, yeah, we ha actually at school they told me, when that film is less than 15 minutes, let us know so we can watch it. <laughs> so then, but I've, I kept on doing it. It was not a, it was not a good moment at that, mo at that uh, when I was doing the film, when I was shooting or editing, but when I released the film, things changed in documentary. It was in a right moment to, to release the film. And the programmers started to look at the documentary. One year after that, they created a beautiful tour called Ambulante in Mexico, which started to create better audiences. We started to be more related with events like IDFA. So then something started to happen. And I was in the middle of it, so I was pretty lucky in, in those years. I'm talking about 2002, 2003. Um. Was there a process for you in building your your confidence to sort of bring a, a visual style, a strong aesthetic style, to stories that sort of mattered for you? You know, like when like the, when the stakes of the stories got higher, did that become a tension at all? 
Yeah, always. It's something that matters, but I prefer to follow what I found. And sometimes there are films that are more important for the for the pertinence of it. And and other films that you ha I have more time for making a reflection or try other styles, but mostly I work with the things that I found. For example, once I made a film with thieves, and I didn't want it a talking head film, but then I found out that this guy was extraordinary because he was a thief. So he was really good for confusing everyone. He had a very nice way to tell stories. So then I was in the middle of a, you know, of a problem. I was I knew it was not going to be popular, but then if I didn't follow what I found, I was missing a great character. So then I decided to do that. When I saw the final cut, I said, well, that w maybe this is your last film. But then it became the most popular film in Mexico. It was in Pipe, it was in the market for police officers, for other thieves, for in the, in the prisons, it became really popular. So for me, it was really nice, having made a film about cops and thieves, which was really a, a success for them. Maybe not for the rest, but uh, having a blockbuster in the prisons is something, it's quite something. <laughs> um, there's a, a thought I've had, especially recently, you know, you, and you touched on this with, you know, the, the idea of the talking head, which is, you know, feels sort of verboten if you're making observational, you know, documentary. But it actually is, you, you treat it sort of the same way you would treat any other uh, setup. You know, any of, the, any of the ways that you sort of borrow from a, from a fiction film or from a, a shot that is, you're taking time, you're setting it up. I feel like that's how you treat your talking heads also. Yes. And, and, and talk about how you think about, about setting those, the stage for those interviews. Yes. Well, the films are different. So a character like that, for example, is someone you should know before sitting and talk with him because uh, he's uh, quite a character and he needs to feel confident. Because uh, for me, the, one of the most important things about faces is that they show a lot, and the sight shows a lot. So uh, I pushed that experiment in this last film, trying to set something for the creating an atmosphere for the one who will be in the front of the camera. Now in Mexico, we avoid to tell we, the one who is, will be shot. <laughs> it's a crazy thing, but now it's it's kind of weird, uh, say to say, filming. But uh, I spend a long time, a long time, long time, maybe one year, getting to budgeting and and always also thinking of why I'm there or what can I do or how can I approach it. So first I got a small budget only for for being able lonely staying there and it becomes more kind of a police research in the streets or in the slums or in the in the place that I will be there for three or four years shooting and uh, it helps me to realize or to know if I have uh, if everything will be based or sustained in testimonies or it will be a matter of an observational thing I don't believe in style in filmmaking. Of course, there are films, filmmakers that have a style, but for me, it's like, uh, you know, ones that you are recognized with a style, 
then you are forced to follow that path, and I prefer the freedom that documentary gives us and the experience it has. So it's good to have good ones, bad ones, lazy ones, but uh, a lot of them. So those early, that early process for you, I mean, that's really solitary, right? This is just you working and gathering. And then once you find that moment where you feel like you're ready to start, what does your crew look like? How do you think about uh, pulling, together, pulling that together? Well, I always usually work um, with other, only one producer manager, production manager, and a sound guy. Because I, after the, before this film, I made my own cinematography. So it is, in a way, easy. It's a very small crew. People don't get very intimidated by the crew. And uh, so I just need small budget in order to give a good uh, salary to the people and asking them to be with me in the middle of nowhere for three years. So, and it becomes like quite a family, you know. Our wrapper up parties are really boring. <laughs> we just open a can of beer and there's a cheers. Okay, after three years, I want to thank you. <laughs> you can go home now. <laughs> They're out the door. Yes, That's exactly. <laughs> Don't even finish the beer. Exactly. So it's pretty small. It's a very small crew. At this film, it was bigger because we had more control of things. And I was really, I was a bit tired of being the one who was carrying the camera always. And then I found out how lazy filmmakers without a camera are because then you have to say, and we have to put a camera there. But then you can smoke a cigarette, watch your crew walking, and then go there, go there, 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 and just stay there. When you are the one, then you have to ask yourself twice, do I really need that shot? <laughs> yes, let's go. And then you have to walk carrying your own camera. So I was going to ask how it felt to give up the camera, but clearly it felt great. You just yeah, had to sit like back it. and watch yeah. it. But in this, in this uh, film that everything had a set, when things are happening in the in the in front of the camera, a moment when it's uh, things to be solved immediately, I prefer to be my own camera because at the same time I'm editing the film. For example, after three years shooting drought in the northwest of Mexico, I only came back with 50 hours. I was always feeling I, I maybe I don't have enough, you know, the, the, this strange feeling, which is called fear, uh, that we always have insecurity and all those things. But with those 50 hours was enough to make a film. Now I'm working with a, for a commission thing with a DP, which is a, a very anxious guy. So he cannot stop shooting the film. And then in maybe six months, we have 350 hours, something like that. And I have to always uh, uh, take the handle from the <laughs> trigger. Yeah, 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 take away. <laughs> um, like, I think a thing for uh, for young filmmakers, for would-be filmmakers, I think learning that patience of when not to shoot is this amazing thing. But are there? Do you have strategies? Do you have advice? Well, it's really is that people have to. It's like living a different life. So if you are making a research with thieves and you become a detective or a cop. So when you really think that you are that, it's like being infiltrated. I was maybe three weeks with an infiltrated journalist at Washington. Great stories they had. People who've been working in North Korea or in uh, 
Tanzania, crazy people really. So I think you have to believe that you are in that moment kind of a detective. If you want to make a film in the ranch with cowboys, then you must realize that maybe for three years you will become a cowboy. So that experience is the beautiful thing about filmmaking in docs because it allows you to live several lives in one. So it's a very great experience. Of course, the film is a beautiful result of it, but uh, that part of just being there, watching things, taking notes, letting people know me, knowing people, uh, is one of the most uh, enjoyable uh, moments from filmmaking because you don't have a pressure, you, d you only have an idea. So it is just like uh, writing, but instead of writing in the small room, you know, like the like the poet, then you are writing in a beautiful landscape. Maybe in the afternoon you will ride a horse, helping the other ones moving the cattle, or, or those beautiful things that life gives you. I really think a unifying thing for, I've never met a documentary filmmaker who is not just incredibly curious about other people, you know, and it's like this chance to exercise your curiosity and to figure out. And, and I think, you know, you talk about becoming them, but you have to maintain also that, that reminder of like of what's new, right? Of you're going to tell this story to somebody else, and what what surprises you? What makes you go, "Oh my gosh, I didn't I didn't think it was like that. I thought it was like this." Well, usually, I have a I have an anchor with narrative, so I'm not a kind of a non of a anti narrative things. I like uh, dramatic genres. I like the tragedy how it's built. I like how melodrama is built. How comedy is built. So in a way, while I'm doing that observational part, I'm trying to find out which are the ports where you can anchor the story. So for example, if I found a film about a thief, then he committed a great robbery for a president. So that robbery is a beautiful port in order to bring to, to, to make it there. Or a, a town that has to move because of the drought and has to come back with the rains, it talks about the story of the Exodus. So another film that I made was about the murder of uh, Monsignor Oscar Romero in El Salvador in the 80s, which was maybe the, one of the plotting moments for, for having a civil war that would last for 12 years. But the idea of facing the story of someone who knew that I was gonna be murdered and faces that destiny is a very narrative story. So. Those are the things that I'm looking for. If the story is being able to talk or not, or if there's no story, only beautiful landscape, and if the character is of the, of the human being can become a character later. So that's what I'm in a way making kind of a casting and trying to find the storyline. And then when I find this port or these places where to put the anchor, then I realize that it's a that it's a possibility to have a film. But I think you're also really expert at making micro-narratives, right? You're, you're finding these larger threads, but then, I mean, and there's the scene in Drought where the cow falls down, right? And we know it's, that's it. And it's just that, there's so much, you know, there's more narrative tension in that scene than most fiction films pull out of, you know, human life and death. Um, and it's a really beautiful small moment amidst the larger ones, um, which I think is actually a good jumping off point for this El Paso clip. Because mm -hmm. um, this is, for me, a wonderful 
series almost of micro narratives, and we can talk about the strategy. So can we show the clip from El Paso? Um, so talk a little bit about um, a little bit about shooting this scene, but also the moment where you figured out that this scene belonged in the movie yeah. and then how you built it from there. Yes. I approached this film called El Paso because uh, I had a friend who was making another film, fiction film, but as a part of the cinematography department, and I was uh, responsible for all the uh, look-alike documentary thing that I always want. And it was in Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, in the very convulsed moment. It was uh, in the middle of the war. So I met, uh, I had a, I used to work as a journalist, as I told before, uh, covering police cases. So I had a great, uh, good friend in, in, in Juarez who was the one covering violence in, in, in town. So he was the one who was letting me know, you should come here because they murdered someone and then you have, you can come and shoot. <laughs> or there's a chase or there's something like that. And then after one year, uh, one year before, after that, uh, he, I heard that he was exiled in Montreal in Canada. Then he was, he became a gardener. And the image of uh, that great journalist now cutting the grass was a bit shocking for me. So I decided to make a film inspired of his story, looking for other journalists who had been threatened in, the, in Mexico and had to move to the US seeking for political asylum. But uh, I didn't want it to talk about the big names. I wanted to talk about these anonymous journalists, which are the ones I am more related with. Um, most of them come from public schools. They will never become really uh, important people in the media industry but they will become great journalists. So I was wondering how can I talk about 
the things that you lost when you decide you, that you must live. And the other thing that I was wondering was, which is the last, um, how do you say eslabón, eslabón, como se dice la cadena, eslabón. You know, key, you know, all this, the chain has small thing, yeah. Uh, key chain. The last key chain in the, uh, in, in the violence phenomena against journalists. And I was always thinking about these kids, the family. So uh, for me, those are the, the last ones who get all this violence that they don't even know what is going on. They just get the news one day that they have to run. They have to move to a country that they don't know, that will not necessarily uh, receive them with the wide open arms and they have to face life. So for me, the sequence was uh, the idea of a Mexican living in a, in a you know, Mexican-American society uh, trying to fit, only trying to fit and trying to help the spectator to be empathic with, uh, with the kid. Because usually we only think about the, you know, the problem that it is to be violating uh, the freedom of, of speech, like an abstract, but uh, at the end of the day, these are the, the ones who are facing uh, violence. These kids were witnesses of the murder of three of his co their cousins. And now trying to make a normal life, the common things uh, in that uh, in that storyline for me was really important, just to show the common things in the middle of fear. And I sort of imagine that the, the woman selling churros is one of those like beautiful accidents. I mean, you go to the grocery yeah. store knowing that you're going to get something, and then here's this just amazing back and forth, you know, that that ties that up. Um, I want to talk about your music. Um, what, and specifically in this clip, but you do this throughout, um, how do you think about the music that was in your film? And um, I think you, you use the human voice in soundtrack, I think more than a lot of nonfiction filmmakers, and I wonder. Yeah, for me, it helps uh, uh, people get into the atmosphere of it. The, it's not that it will enhance things, but at least it will uh, help to touch a few feelings. So I'm I have been working with a Brazilian guy, which uh, makes abstract music, and then I not. He made this, I don't know why in this style, but then I had to be consequent when I decided who was calling him. But uh, usually I just, I think my whole crew as interpreters of, of what we are trying to tell. And the same thing happens with the musician. I just show them and I talk about, uh, there's a feeling of rage here. But he's a migrant in itself because he moved from Brazil to Mexico. So he has all this nostalgia and he interpreted it, that sequence as a nostalgic moment. You know, they are buying churros in the US with a, in a Mexican supermarket in the middle of uh, Texas. So it was really another way to, to establish that one of the uh, more painful things that migrants uh, live are, is nostalgia, is uh, wishing to be home. But in this case, they cannot be home because they could be murdered if they, if they go back. So that was his idea of it. And sometimes I'm not really, 
I'm, I don't even like sometimes when I see it, I say, I don't like it really. Only when I really don't like it that I say something. But if not, then I say, well, that was the way you thought about it, and let's go forward. And uh, some of the th some things like that I apply with the photographer, the cinematographer, or the editor, um, or the sound designer, which is... Uh, I've been working with the same crew for 15 years. So in a way, uh, we understand each other quite well. And uh, the years help you in order to that that uh, to make things easier for the for creation. They know in a way that they cannot be over a few things because I will say no. But I am not like a boss. Yeah, it feels like a collaborative thing. And he is a great musician. I chose him as a musician for this film, and then I say okay, let's do it. I don't. Sometimes I don't even like. But uh, but it was his point of view. Do you, I mean, you like this track now? Yes, yes, you, yes. You've yes, made yes. peace with it. No, no, no. Yes, I made peace. It's a bit, uh, you know. Uh, sometimes I don't, but uh, yeah, <laughs> he likes it. He enjoys the music, and he wanted to add his voice and all those things. You know, this beautiful Brazilian voice. Yes, okay, that's it. That's it. Um, talk about uh, the relationship between El Paso and Devil's Freedom, and sort of set that up for us. And how how did these two films come about? Well, I was, I was uh, developing Devil's Freedom, and uh, these characters from uh, this film were part of it, from El Paso were part of, the, of Devil's Freedom. And then uh, I couldn't get the budget for Devil's Freedom. No one believed in the film in the beginnings. Maybe I was not, I couldn't know, I was not good for explaining what I wanted. But was your, was your pitch pretty close to what it came out as, or were you pitching a different? Yeah, I don't like pitches. <laughs> I've never been in one in my life. But with the producers, I was not able to pitch, because I knew that it was something that I wanted, but I was not able to verbalize it. So that's why I think that it, it was impossible that this film could be my first one, because in a way, I had the trust of the producers. They were wondering, well, he doesn't know what he wants, but maybe he will have something. Okay, let's do it, and that's it. No, But if it was my first one, it was, would be impossible. I tried for more than three years to, to finance the film. And then the numbers of, of uh, violent acts in, against uh, journalists grew in Mexico, and they made... Uh, horrifying number of uh, each 27 hours a uh, uh, journalist is murdered in Mexico. And I thought that it was an um, important moment to talk about it. So I talked with a quite good reputed producer in Mexico. She was a producer of Labyrinth, uh, the Fonds Labyrinth, uh, who won uh, an Oscar from Guillermo del Toro. And uh, she is very political producer and she said okay let's I will help you she wanted the film with uh, big names but then I told her no but we must make it with uh, no ones say well okay he knew that it would that it would be then impossible to sell the film but okay he, he trusted it so I took uh, those stories I traveled to Texas in order to meet them because I only heard about them and then it started maybe one year of uh, trying to convince them that they could trust 
because uh, now in Mexico, victims of violence became really uh, profitable, mm. yeah, for filmmaking. And they are a bit, uh, they don't want to talk with journalists or they don't want to talk with writers and they, of course, don't want to talk with filmmakers. So I needed to let them know that I really care. And the reason that I care was because I have close friends who are living the same situation and I lived the situation before as uh, myself and my family. So it connected us, but it took one year. For example, one of the journalists has a, his family moved to Colorado. They are, he got the political asylum before and he didn't want to show me his family. So I was a bit worried because then I said, so what am I gonna do? And then on the last week of a process of two years of shooting, he told me, okay, we can go with the family. So, and I felt that I could do it because they were living now in the US. Uh, after the film, the other guy got the political asylum, which is a very extraordinary thing because for Mexicans in the U.S. asking for political asylum is is already a no. Only the one percent of the cases are uh, get the political asylum, and in one year we only had fourteen thousand appliances for it, so it was really heavy. And we made a film because it helped the lawyers to prepare the case as well. So when the, this film was over, he didn't get the political asylum, but after one few months, then he got it, fortunately. Is that, that process of, I mean, of, of sort of gaining their trust and getting the consent, I don't imagine that ends when you start shooting. So, I mean, is there a process that there's a continuous checking in and people who maybe halfway through say, whoa, I don't know about this anymore, and... It's, it's, uh, it's a bit scary because it's like being the new from the hood, every process. So it's just like being the new one. Uh, when I made uh, Los Ladrones Viejos, The Old Thieves, I was 29 or something, and the thief was 64, and he was a huge legendary thief. So of course, when I, I got in prison, because uh, it was a really complicated thing, I, I published an advertisement saying that I was looking for him then uh, in a police newspaper. And, uh, so a companion of him in prison told him they are looking for you. And he is married with a, with a sister of a very dangerous kidnapper in Mexico, who is in the maximum, maximum security prison. So they, one day after one year of looking for him in, in the prisons, on the streets, I got a phone call. And they, they, they said to me, are you looking for this guy? And I said, yeah, I am his wife. And then they said everything in a very corrupted way for me to get inside prison. I had to, yeah, you know how bend things, not really break, but bend a bit. And then I got one of the most important lessons in documentary filmmaking because I was there after one year, you can imagine, you are looking for a very legendary guy and then you are there and then I say, I want to make a film about your life. And then he just stared at me and told me and asked me, why do I want a film about my life? And then I say, well, what can you tell? Think, think, think. And I say, I don't know. And then he told me, think about it and come next week. 
And then he put me in that next week for eight months. In a way, I realized that people want to know, want to feel that you really are into it, that you really care. But then I established a, like a pact. We are here for making a film. I don't know if we will become friends later. He got pissed off and everything. We, after the release of the film, he wanted you know, to be co-producer of it and all those stories that we all heard. But the problem is that he was a thief married with the family of the kidnapper. So things went really weird. And then I realized that, that it was something beyond making films sometimes. And then same thing happened when I was shooting drought. You can imagine, I was, it was a small ranch, only 14 houses in the Mexican Sierra in the desert in Coahuila, border with, with uh, Eagle Pass in Texas. And uh, you are there, with, no one knows you are there. And they are like grizzly bears, you know, with a cowboy hat and huge mustache and all with guns and everything. And they were in the fire talking. And then I was approaching that feeling that you have when they are started talking, talking, talking. And then as you approach, one stops talking and silence. And then the other one silence. And then when you arrive, everything is quiet. And then you say good night. And then in choruses, they say good night. And then you say, whoa, what can you do now? So then I started to talk about cows. And then uh, we got a good connection because we, fortunately, I come from a family that cares about cows. <laughs> so that was, that was the end you needed. <laughs> yes, for me, that's the most important thing that you have to understand the codes with the one you will talk and that you want to share. And it's not a hard thing because uh, if you're going to be devoted for five years making a film, it is because it's some place that you really want to live or, or, or experience that you want to live as well. And it is because you are related emotional with that, those things. I cannot imagine making a film about something that I don't care. Well, I'm doing now one, but uh, it's a commission film. <laughs> you, you care about the money from the commission. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. It's, it's got to be different. I mean, and you touched on this with The Thief, but... When you go to the former members of the cartel, um, the men in Devil's Freedom, um, who were the perpetrators of violence, was there anything that they asked of you, or an entry point that you sort of felt like I can't, I can't go there? I can't, if you know, if that's what you want, we can't work together. Yes. Well, I, for example, there was a federal police officer, and he said, "I will talk with you about uh, my corrupted historic history." And then um, he, he used to work with the cartel, the police guy. And then when I met him, he was not working with them anymore. But on the day that we're going to start shooting with him, he was into the cartel again. So I said to the crew, I don't think it's a good idea. We have to look for someone else. I tried to not, not to cross three important lines. One was I, I, was, I didn't want to block any business process. I didn't want to block any political career and I didn't want to point with my finger those who I suppose were involved because those are the three lines, the reason of why they are killing so many journalists in Mexico. 
So we had to follow CPJ's protocols. CPJ is the Committee of Protection of Journalists for making this film. And then that those were the things that we have to be careful. For example, the thing that I say we will not do it this way was bringing the cameras to the slums or to the neighborhoods because we were warning the rest that we were making that thing. So we rented a one house in El Paso again and another one in Mexico City, and then we flew the people from different places in Mexico to those houses, kind of a security house, yeah, safety house. And then after that, we flew them back home because it was pretty dangerous to let the other ones know that they were gonna talk because it's like a, a gossip starts and, and gossip things in Mexico is a pretty dangerous thing now. Um, let's watch that quick clip from Devil's Freedom. Siento que el haber matado esa primera persona cambió todo en mi vida. Todo, todo, todo. Hubo un vacío. Siento que a lo mejor al matar a esa persona yo también moría ahí. Yo no sé cómo fue. Ya no sentía, o sea. ¿Por qué seguiste? Pues no. Y siento que fue porque ya no tenía otra cosa. O sea, dije, bueno, ya maté, ¿ahora dónde voy? Pues sigo haciendo esto. Pensé que esa era ahora mi vida. Mi vida pasada había sido ahora, ¿no? Ahora esta era mi vida. Por eso seguí simplemente por hacerlo. O sea, ni, ni siquiera era como un sentido. O sea, como te dije hace un rato, mi vida no tenía sentido en sí. No sé cómo explicarlo. ¿Y serías capaz de pedir perdón o no? Sí. Con todo el corazón, sí. Pediría perdón a todas las familias así que he hecho el daño. Un perdón sincero, así, sincero. De todo mi corazón, de, de, con todo mi ser, yo lo pediría. No, yo creo que ni perdón ni olvido. Para mí no, no tienen perdón ellos. ¿Qué les daría justicia? Yo creo que este castigar a los responsables y no nada y no nada más de o sea del caso de mi mamá y de y de mi familia sino de todos porque todos todos somos o sea estamos agarrados de la misma mano y somos muchas personas que estamos sufriendo entonces yo creo que una de las cosas más importantes sería de que castiguen a los responsables justamente. Some small questions leading to a big question. Mm -hmm. um, you provided the masks. Mm -hmm. Did you provide their clothing also? Or was the clothing was theirs? Mm -hmm. um, I, there's something for me about his like sweater with the V-neck yeah, sweater and the pinstripe. He looks so preppy and yeah. But I guess the big question then is, you know, here you're at, here you have the highest stakes. Here you have life and death for people. And then we talked about the precautions you went through. And you're also making really strong aesthetic choices. I mean, the masks, the most obvious. Um, what guides you as you think about those aesthetic choices and the stakes and where you will create or, uh, you know, control the situation, manufacture situations, and where you won't? Well, something that you are really related with, uh, 
which is uh, the thinking of truth in documentary filmmaking. Because I know that it's something that we can only emulate, that only spectators believe in. But I felt that it was important to at least give a few drops of truth. So the mask could bring us a lot of those drops because uh, all of them, what they share is horror. And with people who talk with fear, they are saying the truth. It's something that all interrogators know, torturers and all those guys. They know, and we know our societies, that there is horror, there is truth. So I was giving them the possibility to be conscious that they will not be recognized, even though they didn't ask for it. Another thing that was a reason is because I was really uh, worried about the possibilities of uh, getting the audience's empathy because I was f hiding their faces. And that's when all this mirror thing with eyes and uh, myself behind a curtain came. So, because empathy comes through the eyes. Once I heard, I met 15 years ago a young hitman, we, we called them sicarios, he was really young. And he told me that when uh, there's someone in front of you on his knees and you have to pull the trigger, you have to do it in the back, because if in the neck, because if you go in the front, you will look at his eyes and you will not pull the trigger, and that is empathy. So that is the main reason of why I use this uh, theatrical thing, because they are talking to us and they are holding the, the sight, the view, and in a way they are questioning us uh, what are we doing as societies? And because when I met them, I was a bit ashamed. And I was the one who could not hold the eyes, the eye contact. So those were the reasons why I decided to make this film. That's why, not only because of the budget, um, it is because I've been through this process and this could never be my first film. Now I have, uh, I was worried. Of course, because I was breaking what it's supposed to be a good documentary. I was using Talking Heads. I really admire the work, for example, of people like Eduardo Coutinho. And those tendencies now that they say, is if there's a Talking Head, there's a bad film. I don't believe in that. But while I was doing it, I was wondering, maybe they are right, <laughs> yeah? So I was making really hard choices and ethical. Uh, complex choices. For example, Mexico is a country who deserves to give a face and the name and the voice to victims. And I was hiding their faces and their names. So it was a bit shocking for me. But that's when I started to contact them in a very respectful way, asking if they were, if they would allow me. And they talking about the possibilities of bringing to the same film those who maybe perpetrated violence against them. And then I felt that the film could was worthy to be shot because uh, they told me I really want to know what he has to say. So it relaxed me and it gave me freedom of uh, of creation. Yeah. And their their curiosity makes gives them a stake in the creation as well, right? Yes, they want to know that, that answer. And were these were these long interview sessions? I mean, how did you? Not really, but because. Uh, that was part of the protocols. For example, I do not know their names, just know their nicknames. I never met them before. 
I just got him in the room. And then that thing happened when I see this preppy kid that was a murderer. Then I realized that we put a face on evil. But sometimes it's not the face that, uh, that it is really the face because also preppy guys could become murderers. So it was a bit shocking for me. I only met them for a few minutes, gave them the mask, talked to them, and after the interview, say goodbye, and they would bring them to the airport and take the plane to the reality again. So they were not long interviews. They were like very specific, and that's something that I, I think that I have uh, developed as a craft, which is talking to people. Because it's not the same thing asking question to a soldier, which is, uh, you know, he's used to obey orders. So you have to make short questions and you don't have to be soft. Or a mother of disappeared. Of course, it, it's a different approach and a different way to ask things. And, the, and you appeal to different things in that moment. And sometimes you are asking with fear as well. Because uh, you know that the one who's there maybe will give you info that you don't want to have. So I think that's a craft that we must develop, making good interviews, making uh, being really close to people. Maybe a talking head film can be good. Did you de develop it just through practice? Or are there interviewers or resources that you look to to kind Only of... Only common sense, really. Common sense. It's like a seduction thing. So, for me, it has been uh, quite an experience. <laughs> because, you know, bringing those stories home back home is not easy when you are raising a child and you are trying to make a family and, uh, and then you are all the day listening how one kid told you that he had murdered other kids. So, you start to feel like a bit depressed, yes? So, but... Uh, it was uh, worth it. Absolutely, it was worth it. I want to take a few questions out there, if you have them. And if not, I'll keep going. I'm very happy to keep going. Any questions in the audience? The, the question is, um, how do you know you're not being set up by the killers when you're arranging the interview? What is set up? Uh, ah, okay, okay. You're, well, you're because I to... trust in the ones who brought them. You, you must uh, go to people, with people, which are trustable for them, and but they are trustable for you as well. So I work with an organization of ex-gang members, and once I was making a commission film for HBO, and I met this uh, group of guys who work with a cartel, then he were in prison for more than 20 years. And after their release, uh, they started to work with kids in order to bring them out. So they were part of it. And the other part of it was uh, extraordinary journalism, who was uh, murdered four months ago, Javier uh, Valdez. And he was writing a book about kids in the, in the cartoons. So I think it's just a, it's confident, trust, and the ones that you are of your closest, and you know instinct. You have to follow a lot of your instinct and uh, danger instinct. To feel, I cannot cross this line. 
It's a, I know it's a very slippery thing, but all dogs are slippery, you know? They, this is more complicated maybe because life is in the middle of it and hurt or pain. Oh, I don't know how many horrifying things, but uh, I have to peel on your instinct and say, uh, look out. Do not play the hero here. It's just, uh, I was not there for making a, a film uh, which points anyone. I was there to talk about hate, fear, obedience with the ones who have pulled the triggers. So, I don't know. Other questions? Hi, thank you so much. Um, so you say before that uh, the narrative is your anchor to not be very involved into the story, but it's something that you think before going, for instance, three years to shoot something or something that is being created while you're filming or while you're there. Thank you. No, usually something that I find out before the budget. That's when I say, okay, maybe there's a film here. Only once it happened that I had the, I had the support of Uber Balls of Rotterdam for that film, and I didn't have the story, but then I had told them that I had it. And then I started to make research and I found it in a newspaper. I think that you start to, things start to change and things start to appear because you open your eyes and you open your ears and you are more focused on that, and a lot of things happen. But uh, for example, in this film called Drought, it was a place where I, I, I knew that place because I was making a doc for television. Nothing very special, but uh, it was uh, at least allowing me to travel the country. And then I found that place, and that's where I heard the story of the town who had to make an exodus. And the, just the story of an exodus is a narrative story. Or when I was commissioned to make this film about the murder of Romero, it is based on what I like, which is police no uh, the, the police novel, which has a perfect structure. There's a body. Someone must have killed him. You have to make the research, and maybe someone will pay for it. So in that case, uh, it was a great tragedy. A guy that said, I know that I will be shot in this film. So that's storytelling, in my opinion. Life gives it. The thing is that you have to be with your wide openness, uh, with eyes wide open to know. And that's the way that you can, in a way, convince the producers to know that it is not only an idea, that they can imagine a film, that they can imagine a story. I always started, because I come from a country who has a very strong tradition in what we call the chronic. It, we, no, we don't have a story told by the great historians. We have a tradition of people who have been writing about the daily life. And that's how we built, built our identity. So I'm part of a beautiful tradition in Mexico. So, but at the same time, there's not the same industry as we have in Holland or as in France you have or in the US. So I start from the point that documentaries are boring. And we all know that they are boring at least in Mexico, and there will be no one who will take a seat to watch a boring film. So I'm more close maybe to the classic narrative because I realize that I have to help that lazy kid, which is a dog, to be, I don't know, uh, enjoyed or suffered or whatever by the other guy. 
because uh, we have a huge structural problems in my country. So making films is very a great privilege, and you have, in my opinion, you have to be aware of it that there's a compromise, a commitment with it. So I, I, not, I not always achieve it, but I try sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Is there a next step you want to talk about, or a place? Is there a place that you haven't taken your craft that you wanna, you feel like would make sense for you, or would challenge you? Yeah, now I, I, after this uh, ride, who has been making this film, and after the jobs that I got, I will start developing a film in, in I hope the first trimester of next year, which is related with guns and kids, uh, because now we have a. Uh, in, in Latin America, in Africa as well, we are societies that fear of kids. You know, this is what happened with the war kids in Liberia or in Sierra Leone. Those are the things that are going on in El Salvador with the Maras, with the gangs in Mexico, with the ones who are the, in charge of gang, uh, taking the rent from the cartels. So there's people who are really scared of a seven-year-old boy. So I want to talk about this a society that fears his seven-year-old kids. I don't really know how, but uh, we'll start to, I hope in 2019, I know how I will do it. Because, you know, working with kids is something uh, not, 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 not only difficult, it's sometimes it is illegal. So there are a few things that I have to solve before thinking about style and cinematic things and all those things. Um, that is all the time we have. Um, I want to thank you all so much for coming out. And Everardo, thank you. Thank you.